Well, the day has finally arrived in our journey with Jesus, right? We've been traveling with him now for three years of his ministry. And for these three years of ministry, Jesus has been avoiding direct confrontation with all of the established religious and political and wealthy powers of the day that opposed him, right? He's been avoiding the powers that be that are, that are all centralized in one place centralized in Jerusalem, right? And that's the place that, that now this morning we find ourselves arriving with Jesus on his journey, right? Throughout the book of Matthew, we, we followed Jesus all over. We started here in Bethlehem. That's where he was born, remember? And then he escaped Herod and he headed down south to, to Egypt. We traveled with him down there. Um, Joseph took his family way back up to Nazareth, up to Galilee after after Herod died, and we spent years, 30 years with Jesus, wandering mostly this area of Galilee up here, far away from Jerusalem, far away from the power center and structures of the world. We traveled up, up north along the lake. We traveled to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We put a lot of miles on with Jesus. If you were here last week, we, we followed him then down south, and he went way down here near Jericho along the Jordan River. He's within the vicinity of Jerusalem now. He's within shooting distance. And now finally, finally today, he heads to Jerusalem. Finally today in Jerusalem, we experience the confrontation that everybody's been anticipating. So turn with me, if you would, to, to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, and the Bible's in front of you. It's page 801. Here in Matthew 21... Matthew provides us with the details of Jesus' grand entrance into the city of Jerusalem. And I would guess most of us here this morning who have been going to church for a while in our lives know the story. We know the Palm Sunday story. You could probably tell me the Palm Sunday story. But we're going to read it again. Because when we understand this story better, when we understand this first century place better. When we look more closely at the details of this story through first century eyes, we will see Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem with a new light, and we will comprehend even more deeply just, just how radically confrontational this moment is for Jesus. Listen to the first 11 verses, Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The d disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him. And those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, 
the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. Now pause there for a moment with me. Right? As, as much as Jesus uh, has avoided stirring the pot with Jerusalem, with the powers that be up till now in his ministry, as much as he's avoided stirring that pot, Everything he does here now in this entrance into Jerusalem is designed to stir the pot. This moment that we just read about is Jesus finally going public with his kingdom purposes. Jesus finally inviting confrontation that is sure to come with the powers that be. There is nothing subtle here about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And first of all, he enters Jerusalem at, at a time when he, when he would make the biggest splash possible. Right? It's Passover week. And of course, as we now look back 2,000 years later on Jesus' death and resurrection, we can see the awesome symbolism of Jesus entering on Passover week, right? Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, coming to Jerusalem where he's willing to die and, and his blood is going to paint the door frames, is going to paint the cross. And that blood will defeat death and provide life by the power and the grace of God. We can see all that beautiful Passover imagery in that story. They didn't know that. But on a very practical level, the week of Passover in the city of Jerusalem was the most public of all times and all places for Jesus now to step onto the national scene. Right? It would be like, like if you want to make the, the biggest political impact in the United States today, you would march into Washington, D.C. on the 4th of July, right? All eyes on you, all people seeing you. Well, it's the same thing except bigger, right? During this one week, during Passover week, literally millions of Jews from all over the world would descend on the city of Jerusalem. History shows us that, that they're estimating that 2.5 million people would flock to Jerusalem, a city that wasn't designed for 2.5 million people in addition to the people who already lived there. Right? So during this week, people would overflow the city walls. They would sleep in, in camps and tents outside the city. This was probably the largest gathering of people in the world. The largest stage possible. And Jesus makes his final approach to the city from the neighboring town of Bethpage into Jerusalem. And his entrance turns into a parade, right? A large crowd of pilgrims who are all making their way to Jerusalem, they fall in line with Jesus. And as they, they head towards Jerusalem, they are shouting and they're singing and they're dancing and they're praising and the commotion only grows bigger and bigger with each step towards Jerusalem's city gates. And if you can picture that in your mind, the scene is so different from anything that Jesus has ever allowed 
before. Right? If you've been reading through the book of Matthew with us, and I hope you've kept up with the readings, you'll, you'll realize, reflecting on what you've read on Jesus' life and ministry, that whenever before, crowds wanted to celebrate him, he would, he would quietly slip away, right? Whenever anyone, maybe someone he healed, wanted to shout the truth of who he was, he would say to them, don't tell. Hey, keep, keep it just our little secret, okay? Shh. Whenever people wanted to declare him king, and there were times when they did, he would silence their voice and say, no, 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 no. Shh. But not this time. Not now. Not this moment. Now, everything that Jesus does here amplifies his message amplifies his position in order to make the greatest impact possible, in order to stir the pot most effectively. Now let's look at the details of his procession into the city. There's so much history and meaning behind every detail of his entrance that we don't usually understand or comprehend or appreciate those details unless we, unless we see this journey into Jerusalem through first century eyes and a first century understanding. Right, so start by, by seeing how Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Right, Matthew tells us that he comes in riding on a donkey. Do you ever ask why? Did you ever wonder why Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem instead of just walking? Right, and think about that for a moment. Right? There was no reason for Jesus to ride. We, if you've been reading Matthew, we journey with him all over the nation of Israel, right? Coast to coast, north, south, east, west. He has walked everywhere, literally hundreds and hundreds of miles walking. And this trip now from Bethpage to Jerusalem, a measly two miles. Okay? Jesus has walked hundreds of miles. Why would he choose to ride two? I mean, this is like a, a walk across the street for him. Well, there's a purpose. There's a reason why he chose to ride a donkey. Because riding a donkey into Jerusalem sent a clear message to those who had eyes to see it. Jesus is telling the whole world that he's coming. He's arriving in the capital city as a different kind of king. He says, I'm coming as a king dedicated to peace. You see, a donkey was a symbol of peace in that culture. Kings who come in peace, who arrive for the purposes of peace, ride donkeys instead of big war horses. We got to see that in the Old Testament, if you know your Old Testament stories. Remember King David from the Old Testament, one of the greatest kings that Israel's ever had? David went through some rocky times in his, in his reign, and one of them was when his son Absalom rebelled against him. And Absalom is trying to get a hold of the kingdom, and he's willing to fight against his father David. And remember what David does? David decides that he is not going to fight his son. He's not going to go to battle. He's not going to fight. And so he leaves Jerusalem, the capital city. And remember in that story how he leaves? He leaves riding a donkey. Sending a message to everyone. I'm for peace. 
I'm leaving in peace. That's the message the donkey would send. Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, predicted that the Messiah king would come riding on a donkey. And here comes Jesus riding on a donkey. In fact, Matthew tells us it was a colt, a young donkey which had never been ridden before. In that culture, young donkeys never ridden before. These colts were reserved for religious purposes. When you had a religious procession, when you had a special, maybe a priest being entered into the priesthood, they would ride a colt that had never been ridden before. And so, and so Jesus riding a donkey, riding a colt, is making it clear that he's coming for religious purposes. He's coming for the kingdom of God, not a political earthly kingdom. And he's going to usher that kingdom in through peace, not through war. Clear for everybody to see. But, but the people in the middle of that parade that day, they aren't taking very good notice. They aren't paying, paying very close attention to the message that Jesus is sending them. Everything that they do in this parade stokes the dreams of the king who's coming to drive out the Romans. Everything they do stokes their dream of a king who's coming to free the nation of Israel. Right? We see them in verse 8. In verse 8, they're, they're covering the ground before Jesus with their cloaks, right? They're, they're taking out their outer garments and laying it right in front of Jesus as he rides on past. That's their way of rolling out the red carpet. That's how you do it if a king comes and you don't have advance warning. Right? If you know a king is coming, you get all the preparations ready and there's an official red carpet to roll out. But if you don't know, then you don't have the preparations to be made, but you make do with what you have. And so laying their cloaks, give him the honor that a king deserved. Right? These, these outer garments are the red carpet before the coming king. In their minds, they knew their history well. It would have brought back another history lesson for them. It would have brought them back to the Old Testament story of King Jehu. Jehu lived hundreds of years earlier. Hundreds and hundreds of years. He lived during the time when, when Israel was ruled by evil kings and Queen Jezebel was bringing about her wickedness on the nation. And God used Jehu, God raised Jehu up to be the king that dismissed all of these other wicked kings, that, that dismissed Jezebel and brought them back to God. And when Jehu finally won his battle and, and rode in towards Jerusalem again, again, they didn't have time to prepare for this new king. And history books tell them that as Jehu rode in, they took off their outer, outer garments and they laid those cloaks down before him. They rolled out the red carpet for Jehu. And now here's the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem saying, we want the same thing from you, Jesus. We want the same thing from you that, that history books tell us that we got from Jehu. We want you to drive out all those oppressive rulers we want you to drive out all these people, these Romans that we despise, and we want you to be our king, just like Jehu. We'll give you our cloaks, just like we gave them to him. Verse 8 also tells us that, that those who didn't have cloaks to lay down, they found palm branches, branches from the local trees, to, to wave in the air and to lay down before Jesus' procession. And this isn't the first time 
that palm branches have waved in the air. We often assume this is something new that they did just for Jesus now. This isn't the first time. Again, these people knew their history well. Seeing those palm branches waving would have brought them right back to the history they learned 200 years earlier. 200 years earlier, a man named Judas Maccabees led a revolt to free Jerusalem from the Greeks who were, who were oppressing them at that time. And we know from recorded history that, that when Judas Maccabees experienced this, this great military victory, he rode into the capital city of Jerusalem, and as he did, they were waving palm branches, and they were laying palm branches on the street in front of him. Judas Maccabees was the king who restored Israel's political glory. And as they waved these palm branches before Jesus, they're expressing their very same desire for him. Jesus, you be our Judas Maccabees here. You be our king. Free us from the Romans, just like Judas freed us from the Greeks. Come, be Judas. Be our king. Set us free. Even the songs that Matthew tells us that they sang reveal their desire for Jesus to be a political king. Matthew tells us that they're singing. They're singing, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. These aren't new words. They're old words. Carrying old meaning for the people of Jerusalem. In fact, you can, read, you can read these very same words in Psalm 118. They were Old Testament songs calling for the Messiah to come. Every year, as these pilgrims made their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they sang Hosanna, meaning save us. It was both a praise and a prayer. It was a praise to God, praising him for rescuing them from Egypt way back in the days of Moses, right? They're coming to celebrate that Passover. They're singing, Hosanna, thank you for saving us. And it's a prayer, praying that God would do it again. That he would send a Messiah like Moses again to set them free from oppression. And the oppression in this day is the Romans. That's the Messiah they're praying for and asking for here. Because they thought Jesus just might be that man. So they shout, save us. Jesus, ride into town and set things right again. Jesus, come in and get rid of the Romans and be our king. Right, this carpet of cloaks, this bending of the palm branches, this, this cacophony of song and sound, it all displays their desire that Jesus be their business as usual king, just like every other king before. But in the confrontation that Jesus chooses in Jerusalem that day, he shows them what kind of king he's actually come to be. With two and a half million people all stirred up in the city, with all eyes focused on him, Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem to confront the establishment power head on. Only he doesn't ride to the palace. His parade route doesn't bring him to confront the Roman governor of the day. 
Instead, his parade route ends at the temple. Listen, listen to what Jesus does on that day. Keep reading with me, verses 12 through 17. Jesus entered the temple courts. And he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So we see Jesus make his claim, stake his claim at the temple. What we see is a deliberate, unmistakable challenge done here at prime time with maximum exposure, interrupting business as usual in Jerusalem that day. When we picture, when we see Jesus getting off his donkey. And when we see him throwing over the tables of the money changers in the temple, when we see him driving out the animals and driving out all the businessmen, driving them out of the temple courtyard and into the street, what we see is we see Jesus publicly declaring his economic and religious purposes as the true Messiah. Right? First of all, what we see him doing is we see him interrupting big business. What he interrupted there in the temple was a cash cow for the wealthy and powerful of the city of Jerusalem. This wasn't just a little mom and pop interaction, a little mom and pop business that he cleared out. Money changing during Passover week was a huge money maker for the wealthy and the powerful. Because here's how it worked, right? We, we already found out, we already saw that, that about two and a half million pilgrims are making their way to Jerusalem. And they're making their way there for Passover. And they're going to sacrifice. The Passover sacrifice. Only most of them don't bring their own goat or sheep or, or dove with them for the sacrifice. They come to Jerusalem and once they get there, then they go and purchase an animal to be sacrificed. And the law of supply and demand goes into effect here. So for this week, the prices of every, every lamb, the price of every goat, the price of every dove, the price of every animal skyrockets. It's a great chance to make some money there in the temple courtyard, right? The Passover, not only that, but the Passover was also the time when you would pay your annual tithe at the temple. But you could only pay your tithe in Jewish currency. And remember, there's, there's Jews coming from all over the world, coming with foreign currency. And so, and so the money changers of Jerusalem made it easy for them. They set up shop in the temple courtyard. And there they were willing to exchange your foreign money for Jewish currency so that you could pay your temple tithe. They're more than willing to do that for a fee, for a percentage, for a profit. 
And so this, this temple courtyard, this place designed for worship and prayer, during Passover week, the most holy week of all, right? It, it becomes a carnival. A carnival filled with the bleeding of sheep and the chirping of doves and the shouting of businessmen and the clank of coins. And Jesus steps on in and he puts an end to it all, right? He turns over their tables. He chases them out of the courtyard into the street. And in doing so, he declares to everybody that economic benefit is not the filter by which this king is going to shape his opinions. Economic benefit is not the filter by which this king is going to shape his actions. A sold-out love for God trumps economic benefit every single time. And he refuses to compromise. And, and then did you notice what we often look over? Did you notice... After he chases out the animals, after he chases out the money changers, did you notice who's left? Verse 14 tells us, and it should remind you of our message last Sunday if you were here. It says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Out go the powerful, in come the blind and the lame. And a few verses later, it tells us that, that there were children running and shouting in the temple courts, right? Children running through the sanctuary. And, and so you have the blind and the lame and the children. Last week, Matthew made it clear to us that, that those people are the antidote to power. Those people are the ones that Jesus focuses on instead of the ones who are, who are getting all the earthly glory, who have the wealth and the power and, and the politics behind them. Jesus pushes out the people who had earthly power, and he brings in the powerless instead. So in parading straight to the temple instead of the palace, Jesus does not confront the social and political seat of power. Instead, he boldly confronts the throne of the heart. Right? His passion is for the everlasting kingdom of God, not the temporary kingdom of Israel. And the throne that he desires above every other throne is not some oversized chair in an oversized palace. The throne he desires above all else is the throne of the heart. The hearts of those who are willing to call him Lord. The hearts of those who are willing to receive his forgiveness and his grace. The hearts of those who are willing to live lives sold out for his kingdom purposes. For his purposes of love and grace and service and sacrifice. Jesus marches into Jerusalem, parades into Jerusalem, and he throws down the gauntlet in the heart of enemy territory. His parade ends at the temple courtyard with the rich and the powerful replaced by the children and the weak. And then he turns around and he leaves because he's made his message clear. He's a different kind of king bringing a different kind of kingdom. And it didn't take long for the people to respond. It did not take long for the shouts of the crowd to change 
dramatically. It didn't take long for them to abandon him. Because he's not the kind of king they were hoping for. Right? They had their hopes set on an earthly king who would confront the Romans, not confront business people in the temple. They wanted Jesus to go to the palace, not to mess with their hearts. They wanted Jesus to defend them, not confront them. And so it didn't take long for this crowd to see that they had gotten it horribly wrong that morning. They had waved their palm branches. They had laid down their cloaks on the road. They had shouted Hosanna to a king that they thought would bring glory back to Israel. And when they began to realize that Jesus was a king who had it all backwards, who had it all upside down, who rode a donkey instead of a horse, who went to the temple instead of the palace, who reached out to the powerless instead of the powerful, their shouts quickly transformed from Hosanna to crucify. This is not the kind of king we want. And it certainly isn't the kind of king that the religious and political leaders wanted either. They couldn't stomach him. Verse 15 tells us that after Jesus, Jesus made his statement here, they were indignant. They were angry. They were furious. This Jesus was challenging the very system that had given them power, the very system that had given them authority, the very system by which they made their wealth that they loved so much. They were, Jesus was stirring the pot in a way that they couldn't tolerate, and they hated him for it now. They hated him. And you know what? He was on their turf now. This was their territory and their turf, and they're going to defend their turf no matter what. Even if it means scheming with the hated Romans. Even if it means murder. And honestly, Jesus really isn't the kind of king that you and I usually want in our comfortable, affluent, power-filled lives either. Because Jesus has not come to affirm our comfortable lives. Jesus has come to stir the pot. Jesus has come to turn the tables. Jesus has come to challenge us and to turn our world upside down. This king has come to bring healing where there is hurt, to bring justice where there are wrongs, to bring forgiveness where there is guilt, to bring life where now we experience only death. This king has come to stir the pot in every area of your life and my life, from our work to our wallet, from our family to our free time, from our, our heads and hearts to our hands. Jesus comes into our lives, into your life and mine, and he marches straight to your heart, and he turns over the tables of your life, he challenges you in every single part of life. He stirs the pot, and that makes you and I very, very uncomfortable. But he does it. He does it with the goal of bringing you and me the greatest comfort of all. Jesus comes and stirs the pot of our lives 
He stirs up our priorities. He stirs up our decisions. He stirs up the choices that we make day in and day out because he knows that there's something so much better waiting for us. There's something so much better for us when we let him be king and we give him the throne of our lives. Because as king, he promises to give us strength for each day and comfort for difficult times. As king, he promises to provide us a deep joy in life that will turn our mourning into dancing. That goes so much farther than the shallow happiness that this world offers. And as king, he promises to provide us an amazing grace that's greater than all of our sins and a complete forgiveness that will carry us through this life and into eternity. As king, he promises a transformed life here and now and then forever and ever. Jesus stirs the pot of our lives. Why? Because he loves us. And he knows what's best for us even when we don't. And so as this king comes into your life and into mine, as he steps into your heart, if you let him have the throne of your heart, he stirs up your life. He stirs up your priorities. And you and I need to respond. When we sense King Jesus stirring the pot in our lives in some radical, uncomfortable way, so often we respond like the crowd does on that Palm Sunday, right? We've been shouting, Hosanna, come save us, be king. And when he makes it uncomfortable for us, too often we we become fickle just like them, and our shouts soon go to crucify. Get out, Jesus. Be dead to me. We defend our own power. We defend our own kingship. We defend the throne that we want to sit on. You and I need to know that Jesus is a different kind of king, bringing a different kind of kingdom. And he's bringing it to your heart, and he's bringing it to mine. And as we celebrate his arrival here this morning, we need to decide how we are going to receive him. Will we receive him as king? Will we give him the throne of our hearts and the details of our lives? Because to all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Children of God. Think about that. The king has come. Welcome him to your heart. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, king of kings and lord of lords, you are not only king far out there somewhere, you not only want to be king over nations and continents and universes, but you come to be king over each one of our lives. You come to be king over our hearts. And it's so easy for us, along with the people of Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, to shout, Hosanna, come save us. Yes, please come be our king. And then when it comes right down to it, when you start to stir the pot in our lives, it's also easy for us to join them in shouting, crucify, get out, 
be done. Die to me. Jesus, be our king. And give us the courage to stay faithful to you. Especially when you stir the pot. When you challenge us. When you confront the areas of our lives that need confronting. When you encourage us in our journey of faithfulness. May we continue to shout, Hosanna, come save us. Come be my king. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Worship team, would you come forward? We're going to sing one last song together.